G'day, my name's Martin Murray and you're listening to the In The Paddock podcast, where we talk all things farming. G'day and welcome back to the show. So today we've got Rob Eccles on again, talking about the Australian hemp industry and hemp agronomy. Basically, the how of how to farm hemp. Rob has an extensive knowledge of growing hemp in Australian conditions, so much so that he's currently just finishing up writing the Hemp Best Management Guide. So it's an interesting chat, covers off all the boxes you need to tick to grow a hemp crop, all the things you need to do to cover the bases to make sure you are getting a great crop. So check it out, listen in, you're in for a great show. Uh, G'day everyone, welcome back to the podcast. We're here again with Rob Eccles, uh, private agronomist and consultant along with research agronomist and co-author of the Australian Hemp Best Management Guide. Um, and basically, we're here to talk hemp and hemp agronomy. We've had Tim Schmidt on in the past, uh, who is a hemp grower himself from down in Tasmania, talk about the industry and the opportunities that are there. So if you're interested in growing it, um, we're here to talk to Rob and find out all we need to know about how to grow a hemp crop. So Rob, how about you take it away? Thank you, Martin, and uh, thank you for having me. Yes, so hemp is a crop that's relatively new to Australia. It, it was uh, experimented and grown probably the best part of 20 years now under um, research licences and, and each state has clicked over, as Tim would have said in your earlier podcast, clicked over to making it um, legal to grow in each state. Tasmania was one of the first ones and then New South Wales is very closely behind and now every state and territory you can grow hemp, but it's a regulated crop, so you still need to get a license to grow it. Um, it sounds like a bit of an impost, but once you've got your license and done it once, it's it's just a formality. It's just it's just like um, you know owning a gun, you know, or, or not even that bad. You know, you just got to follow the rules. So so that's where we are in the industry. It's it's been probably five years of production now tasmania is still leading the area where tim's from in 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 crop uh the earlier commercial crops so far have um fed into the the feed sorry the feed the the human food market so so for it's an oil seed so it's you crush it and get oil out of it but it's also a very good source of vegan protein so it's very good food value and nutrition for humans and there's been some studies there's other um, fruit and veggies and grains that are suitable but if you're gonna go for a six-month trip to mars um, and you had nothing else to eat they say nasa says uh, hemp is a complete food the grain is if you want to have nothing else so it's got a good range of nutrition and a lot of essential oils endorsement there (laughs) It is, isn't it? Yeah, and and I know it sounds like fiction, but but uh, I actually know one of the people at um, New England University that was actually on that um, panel. So so um, it is a big claim. Anyway, uh, so industrial hemp is what we call it. I'll go through a bit about why you want to grow hemp initially, then talk about hemp itself as a crop and a species just to dispel some of the myths that are out there and then you can lead the charge then 
um, Martin on quizzing me about what growers need to know if they want to consider growing the crop. No, no, that, that'll be good. Yes. Just, yeah. So why would you grow hemp has another number of advantages for a, for a farm, particularly a grain farm to have in its rotation. It's got a very high water use efficiency. Um, it, it will only need about three megalitres of water to grow a good crop. Uh, and it also has a high return per megalitre. Um, so the dollar return is about three times higher per megalitre of applied water as to cotton, as to corn, um, and it's higher again than grains like, like rice, for example. So it's it's good return for your irrigation cost. Um, it's a good rotation filler for other crops as a disease break. So you can act as a break for diseases and nematodes and, and other pests. Uh, so people generally find the next crop after the hemp crop is very good. So putting the, the picture, hemp has to be considered as part of the rotation to get the total return or advantages of growing it. Uh, it also, there's a wide range of varieties and it gives you a wide range of planting dates. So where you would be in say 30 degrees latitude in New South Wales, you could plant from early spring to about March. So you've got a wide range. You wouldn't plant the same variety in, but you have choices. And, and also you've got a range of different products it produces. So you've got um, whole crop, which is, which is fiber and, and internally the fiber, the stalk is herd. So you've got building products, you've got fabrics for, for clothing. And, and other uses and you've got the food the grain uh, which we talked about a minute ago it's a very highly nutritious grain so it's a very good food crop yeah some people call it superfood i just call it it's just another alternative but it's a good alternative to it for people's diets or, or include in their diet the other good thing about it is there's no specialized equipment you need to grow hemp uh, whatever you have in terms of sowing equipment, um, harvesters, uh, grain storage, um, you know, irrigation, it's you can just use what you've got. As we'll go through later, uh, uh, there's a different emphasis and importance and different steps of growing a crop, but everything I would tell you today, you'll it'll be familiar to you. You just put a different importance on each of those. Um, so everybody is capable of growing hemp, but they will need to follow, you know, the the, the best management practice that that's being written at, at the moment, funded by Agri Futures. And the other thing, I guess, is that it's a it's a product or, or crop that generally is forward sold via contract before you plant it, so you know what you're going to earn in terms of product, you just got to make sure you grow a good crop. So that's the good thing. Um, it's always a positive. Um, there's one thing I've found out <laughs> since going from agronomy to farming, it's growing's easy, selling is hard. Um, and freight, logistics and all of that fun stuff. It, absolutely right. It's, it's, and this is a crop definitely, it's a new, new 
in every every way it's new to you know how the growers is new the varieties are, are new and we're still learning what we need and you've got to pull right through you know, like a supply chain so you, we need to pull through the people um know how to process it but even even the consumers so we've got to educate the consumers as well so it, it's a it needs to be pulled through and that's where it's it's going up and down a little bit as a as a crop like the, the first crops were emphasis was food like grain and and, and sniffing at turnarounds in the last 12 months that there's a lot more interest in in it as a building product um source of material so you can make things like hempcrete um out of it but yeah people can do their own homework on on the products there's plenty of information on the internet about all the wonderful things you can do with hemp um and i call there's a lot of wonderful stories about hemp i call it tooth fairy science martin um, yeah if they, you know, people say probably seen the memes <laughs> there's there's no shortage of of memes about hemp telling you how brilliant it is um so i guess probably if we want to go into some of them and just dispel a few myths well, well certainly will it, it's it's um yeah it just quickly yeah it you know it's supposed to be uh reputed to be a taproot plant it's got a you know 15 meter taproot like loosen or something or other it it's not it's a it's a shallow rooted plant um and you, and when you're irrigating you need to be irrigating regularly not not more volume but just got to put irrigation on more frequently in smaller amounts so that's that's one myth there um it's true you can't really kill it with drought it'll it'll not die in drought generally but it won't do anything if it doesn't have any water just like lucerne lucerne won't die but lucerne won't do anything about about watering and regular watering um and and it's it's a pretty slow and pathetic seedling so you so we need to have good um uh seed bed preparation whether it's no-till or, or conventional and 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 it needs to be fertilized you can't you can you can grow it without pesticides but obviously um without using any hard pesticides you're better off use them as a management tool and you're better off using fertilizer and strategically but i'll get on to that in a minute i'll just um just go through the little bit of history of it as a as a species so hemp industrial hemp and all hemp that we know is is something that humans have probably one of the very first crops that were domesticated. Uh, there's some talk about in Japan being found in some um, diggings that might be 12,000 years old, and it's certainly by 10,000 years ago it was it was a, a crop across Europe and Asia uh, that people carried the seed around and, and cultivated so it's one of the very first if not the first domesticated plant uh, it goes back long before um you know civilizations like egypt and whatever it's it was probably one of the reasons why people started settling in villages um there was probably multiple species uh across europe and asia and and then as humans carried around seed with them um or, or they came to a new location as of um, setting up villages around Europe and Asia. They obviously cultivated hemp and then they hybridised with what was around in the landscape. So generally speaking, there's it's considered now, especially with DNA testing, that we 
it's really just one species. Um, if you, the literature might have said you've got um, sativa species, you know, cannabis sativa, um, which is generally now considered a land race that's used for industrial hemp, which is basically your fibre crops and your grain crops. Um, cannabis indica is now just considered a land race called indica, which is used for your uh, alkaloid type products, which is your narcotic THC and your and your CBD. And then there's um, another little little um, species is now a land race. Both times it was called luteraris. So, and that's handy just to cross with other other um, land races to create something different. So generally it's one species, um, a good test, whether it's a, it's a hybrid or species or not, is that if you cross any of these land races, you don't experience hybrid vigor. So, you know, you put Bos Taurus and Bos Indicus cattle, they'll happily cross and you get some hybrid vigor. Um, but you won't get hybrid vigor when you mix these varieties or land races together so that sort of suggests it's it's just one species and, and you can have arguments go black and blue with it but generally they're the one species so the terminology that we hear is based on on um you know different european languages so hemp is a word for fiber um in in old german uh germanic english so so you find dutch english sort of French, Germans, they they use the word hemp when they talk about fibre. So you've got other crops that are fibre crops that use the word hemp, like sun hemp is a legume. It's a tropical legume, but it's got it's got hemp. It's got not related to, you know, this hemp species at all. So so if one part of Europe called it hemp and then you've got cannabis is more a Greek sort of area of the world it's it's it means fragrant cane because all hemp crop stinks a bit it smells a bit it's it's the terpenes in the alkaloids so hemp and cannabis are interchangeable um generally um although we use hemp for industrial hemp crops you see in broad acres and cannabis is generally used now for crops that are alkaloid type so yeah medicinal cannabis is is commonly used, uh, meaning there's a crop that's high in CBD um, or even in the you know, the narcotics THC. And then marijuana is really just about a hundred year old slang for Mary Jane, uh, which is basically you know, when when the whole species was demonised, um, and and Mary Jane is like Mexican Spanish for marijuana or Mary. Mary Joanna or something, something pronunciation like that, but it's Maria Jane or Mary Jane. So, there so marijuana is just a manufacturing thing. Yeah, I didn't realize it's just any a, of that. it's just a, yeah. So it's just a way of making it sound evil. So, so in in, in Australia and I think it's used in other areas like Canada and the USA, they call it hemp now. Generally speaking, yeah, yeah. So that's that's the the history of it. So it's one species with lots of land races. Um, you have a cool thing about hemp is that it's um, a term called dioecious. So you've got male and female flowers. Um, and when you have a, a sow a crop, half the plants will be male and half the plants will be female. And and um, so the female is where your grains produce, obviously, and the male is where the pollen is produced. There are 
some varieties now are called uh, dialicious and and that's you know like dual sort of thing so it's not like the plants that have got their flowers combined you just have plants where you've got sections of the plant you've got male flowers and sections of the plant you've got female flowers generally the females are on the top and the males down the stem but but there are some good varieties there but they haven't proven themselves in Australia yet uh, it's only a matter of time so so you'll go for the the um uh, sorry dioecious means male and female flowers I think I got that wrong so male and female flowers and different plants is so you got male and female plants is dioecious and monoecious is is um where you got male and female bits on it so sorry about that that's wrong mm -hmm. what I said so if you gonna harvest grain you want female plants so so if you want to harvest um, alkaloids uh, whether it's a drug narcotic um, or the CBD you want the female flowers because the female flowers when they're not pollinated have really high levels of alkaloids and as soon as the pollen uh, fertilizes them they'll drop the alkaloids so so if you're trying to grow some hooch cooch or or some medicinal hemp, you want no males around at all. You want just the females. Um, and and so you, there is such a thing as feminized seed. So it costs money, but if you're growing a, a an alkaloid crop, people are willing to pay the extra money to get something like 95 to 5 male to females. And then if they don't want any males, they'll just rogue them out. So... And another fun fact about the hemp is that it makes no nectar. So anybody tries to sell you hemp honey, just laugh at them like I do. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I have seen that actually in the Northern Rivers. Yeah. I know. I know. There's a convention on in Brisbane uh, in, in the middle of um, what, sometime in the middle of 2023. And there was one there about 2019, I think there was. And um, I actually put to these people um, peddling hemp honey and they said oh, oh it's inspired by hemp <laughs> so I don't know what that means but anyway certainly but, makes but, a lot of uh, it certainly makes a lot of pollen I know you and I were in a paddock there probably when it was flowering and it is just ridiculous amounts of pollen made by the males because that's the only way it'll pollinate the females it, there is no, it doesn't rely on insect pollinators. So it'll just make clouds of pollen. Um, at certain times, usually around about early, between eight and 10 in the morning, you look at a hemp crop at about head height, look across, it's just a cloud of, of pollen. Um, and the pollen will travel usually about five kilometers. So if you've got anybody growing, you know, illegal, um, hallucinogenic type, psychoactive type hemp, I'll move out of the district very quick because you, you're actually wrecking it for them. So um, many, many people think that's a good thing. Um, but the bees will work the crop. The bees love the, the pollen because they, they feed their broods with it. So a good way of knowing when the hemp males are actually you know, shedding pollen is when you see bee activity. And it's a good way of timing your crop because a good tip, which we'll get on in a minute, is that... Um, when the, the males will start pollinating or making pollen 15 days before the females will start receiving, being receptive. And then the males will go about 15 days after the females are receptive. So 
So it's a good way of timing your watering and your fertilizing, um, just a tip. So you see bees work the crop, you know, your females are going to be um, receptive in 15 days. You've got to make sure your irrigation and your fertility is right by then. And, and also crop height is a feature, which we'll talk about for harvesting. You don't want the crop too tall. Um, so when the, when the first males start having bees working them, you know, the average height, of the females when your grain harvesting is going to be about 15 centimetres taller. So it's a really good tip, actually. So, all righty. Yeah, right. That's... So. So I guess let's, yeah. let's start from the beginning. If we're looking to, to plan a crop, what do we need to do? Obviously get that, that market sorted first, but um, which is handy yes. if they're, they're already pre-sold under contract. Um, yes. Let's skip forward to production. Um, where do we start? Okay, so if you're a first-time grower, um, you will need to tick off a number of items on a checklist. Um, I also recommend um, getting a, a yeah, like a buddy system with someone who's grown it before, and and also have a as I as I always would usually recommend have an agronomist that you can work with to to work through what needs to be done and and, and timing of fertilizing and etc but but a checklist for a new time grower and i really recommend every one of these have to be ticked off so um the first one is getting a variety that suits your um location which really is latitude and and knowing exactly from the supply of that seed that should be coming from what your planting window is in that latitude that you are because hemp is a species that gets triggered the flower by day length so some varieties like the ones in Tasmania presently as soon as you get past the longest day towards the end of December they'll somehow work out very quickly that the day length is shortening and, and that'll trigger them to start flowering. Other varieties, like the ones that probably suit northern New South Wales, for example, they tend to uh, be planted a little bit later and they'll usually get triggered the flower around about April-ish or March, something like that. So if if you put the variety in the wrong timing, especially for grain production, if you put it in too um, late for that variety, the plants won't grow high enough and they'll start flowering when they're knee high or waist high. You want you want the hemp plant, the females to be around about 1.6 to 2.2 metres high. And it gives you a robust enough plant to give you a good grain head on, on, on the female plants. You usually get one dominant head and you get a few sub branches depending on the varieties. It's a bit like a, an old, an older sorghum, yeah, similar to sorghum. I was just thinking, yeah. Mm. Yeah, very much like it. So you get, and these heads are fairly tight too. So, so I I used to, um, you know, get roped into um, judging sorghum. So I very quickly learned that a, a typical sorghum head's about 100, 120 grams. And, um, you know, a really champion sorghum variety head might have 150 grams. But, but a, a head on a, Hemp plant, the dominant head on the hemp plant is about the same. It's about about 100 to 120 grams. 
um, and and it's the main head that you want. So you want you want the height of the plant about 1.6 to 2.2 meters. That's still not too tall for harvesting, uh, but that gives you a robust enough plant. So if you got the sowing date wrong, you'll you'll if you go too late for your latitude, it'll grow too short and you won't get a good yield because you haven't got a robust plant. If you plant too early, uh, it'll grow too tall and you won't be able to harvest it. Um, so the same variety is usually dual purpose in hemp. So if the grower bulk crop, which is tall, you know, stalks of hemp that are eventually going to be um, used for fiber or, or, or building material, um, you'll plant that as soon as your frost free period has arrived, probably September for many, many people. And, and that'll, that, variety when you plant that early will probably grow five meters tall or, or thereabouts six meters five four meters something like that and they, they're quite impressive crops you can see plenty of photos on the internet trophy photos that i call them with tall crops you plant that same variety uh for grain uh later in the season so you might be planting december to march probably um in most of the australian wheat belt sort of areas so so that's the first thing is is know your variety and and learn about the right planting date um hemp will grow between 15 and 50 degrees so latitude so it'll grow from Cairns to further south and tassie so you've got plenty of um if the land can grow a grain crop you can grow hemp if you've got irrigation that's that's what you really be, need to be considering at the moment a grain grain growing farm that has irrigation that's what you want the next tick point would be um just your just your attitude to growing a crop you you want to have an open mind uh, you need to be patient you, you won't grow the world record crop the first time um so you, you want to be a coachable farmer willing to listen willing to you know not be too proud and understand you're going to make mistakes the first time it's like any crop anybody's growing canola for the first time or cotton or corn or or any of those crops mung beans. no one's <laughs> mung beans good example um uh it you're not going to be the best crop the first time but you'll learn an awful lot and and your next second crop and your third crop will, will probably show where you are usually a third time grower will will probably work out um what the potential yield in on their farm under their management is going to achieve. So, so typical new grower, um, I try to avoid this happening, but they might get no, no yield, no harvest. Um, but a typical grower might get six or 700 kilos of grain per hectare. They might grow eight, 10 ton of bulk crop it used to be called fiber crops, but we're trying to use the term bulk crops and a good, in the same situation, a, a good farmer, third time round will, will be limited by the variety but they would grow say 1.5 and and to the 2.2 ton of grain and they might grow 16 or 18 tons of bulk so that's that's the sort of uh yields you can get the prevailing prices for people that just want to have a feel for it is grain prices lately on the mainland have been about 2600 to 2,800 per ton. And on, in Tasmania, it's about $3,500 a ton, which reflects um, 
you know, closeness to the processes that are down there and also um, what they need to pay farmers to attract them to grow crops rather than, you know, probably from all, all um, um, the, yeah, the, the opium popular or panacinamol, I think it is, other crops. So reflects the price. And then your bulk crops, you might be looking at 300 odd dollars a ton plus or minus a hundred dollars um so 350 250 it all depends on the contract that people might give you um but but your return is fairly fairly good um when you think you only need three megs of water to grow the crop your your return on a good crop is similar to a good crop of cotton net um but instead of outlaying six thousand odd dollars you're outlaying uh, probably about thirteen, fifteen hundred dollars. So it's a, it's attractive that way. Which um, I, I just want to jump back to the water thing there. So three yeah. megs is uh, effectively three hundred mils of rainfall. Uh, which, Absolutely right. Yeah. You know, a lot of these cotton growing areas should be achievable overseas, and it's. I'm guessing because it's shallow rooted, it's the timing that is more important than the uh, than the actual. Um, uh, total amount of rainfall. You are on the money, and if there's one of the few things that you need to do properly to get a good crop, is it's your your scheduling of your irrigation. You're absolutely right, Martin. You you want to be watering twice as frequently as most other crops with half the amount of water as most other crops. So so we've got capacitance moisture probes in the ground in these crops and it's showing us that it only really drinks between 20 and 30 centimetres most most of its life and no no deeper. Um, you, if you have the capacitive probe that measures every 10 centimetres down to a metre, you'll find there's a bit of a, towards the end of the crop during grain fill when the moisture demands highest, you might get a bit of a whimper of um, water use at 40 centimetres, but anything underneath that, nothing is happening at all. So it may be a tap-rooted plant in definition, but it... It's it doesn't it doesn't use those uh, any deeper roots, um, but generally a few and far between anyway in a in a industrial hemp uh, plant anyway. There's more like a fibrous shallow fibrous root system, um, but absolutely so right. Your, ideal your water scheduling pivots. is important. I, ideal, ideal for, for pivots. pivots. Yeah, not not really yes. a flood irrigation type crop. You'd you'd want to really be growing it under pivot by the sound of that. Yeah, so. You want you you want a pivot's probably where the best results have been. Um, I don't think I've seen a crop more than a ton and a half of grain that's not under a pivot. Um, you any overhead watering's probably you know suitable. Um, you know, but just imagine, remember the crop gets quite tall, so you you know you can't have hand shift pipe um, on on a on a crop that's two two meters plus higher. Um, there is drip tape being used, whatever term you want to use, trickle, tea tape, whatever. It gets used as well, um, but you've got to sow the seed quite shallow, which we might talk about in a second. Um, so you can't get it out of the ground without a rainfall event or a bit overhead irrigation with, with uh, trickle, because usually you're down five, seven odd centimetres, um, maybe five centimetres or more below the seed. Um, so, so the overhead with a lateral move, a boom, or 
a lateral boom or or center pivots the, the way they do it. Um, flood irrigation, A, is a waste of water because why fill your subsoil with water? It's not going to do anything. Um, and B, hemp doesn't like to have wet feet. It's it's as vulnerable as corn and loosen to damage from ponded water. So if you have water uh, making it anaerobic for the plant for 10 hours, then the plant's most likely going to die. Um, and if you if you've got a puddle of water because you've got little depressions in your in your land, and it's only five or six hours, the, the plants are in the middle of that puddle. Although they won't die, they'll they'll stall, and the, and you'll get an uneven plant maturity happening. So, so the perfect world is you know a, a paddock that drains well enough. And and my benchmark is: Have you grown corn before on that land and hasn't drowned? Have you grown loosen on that land and it's hasn't hasn't perished within 12 months good sign that 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 the hemp will grow on it yeah right well that's a it's a good start so once you get your paddock selected um yes sowing which uh yeah shallow by the sounds of it Def, definitely um you want to um the ideal optimum crop is is one that you uh, so shallow you want to be sowing about half the the depth that you would for the same size grain. So the grain is pretty well the same size as a as a sorghum seed, um, at, which is similar to barley, I guess you might say. Um, and you want to it's got a very weak seedling vigor, um, so it won't push through a lot of depth of soil and and if it's a little bit hard, like compressed on top, it won't push through that. Or, or if you've got soil that's been worked a lot in its history and it tends to crust, you you'll be in trouble getting it out of the ground. So you want to you want to plant shallow. Um, and if you're going to press will it, you press will it from the side, which many you know planters let you do. Don't um, don't have a, a you know a ribbed press well on top of the seed, pressing it in, it's it's going to make it too hard for it maybe to get out of the ground. The row spacing makes it a little bit difficult if, when I'd be telling everybody to precision plant the seed where you've got singulation of the seed. So, so you want every seed to be planted by itself and not be crowded by two or three immediate neighbours. And... Because what it'll do, it it auto toxicity has auto toxicity, as loosen does, for example. So, if the plants come out of the ground and is is three on top of each other, two will die. Um, if you if you have um, an uneven germination, that's why irrigation to get it out of the ground, no matter how moist the soil is, is important. You want every seed to pop out of the ground. Within 48 hours of each other, if you you'll definitely get a germ, you know, as you can over you know seven or nine days in many situations. But those later germed plants will just get um, murdered, killed by their older neighbours. Um, so autotoxicity is quite big. So you want a nice even germination. Even germination is don't sow it too deep. Um, dress the seed with a fungicide. Um, or insecticide so seed dressing is 
I would recommend to try and not have a non-fatal but setback disease of pythium or, or rosatania or something just that might slow it down. So dress dress your seed, put insecticide on it if you're expecting anything that's going to affect a young seedling like false wireworms. Um, so shallow, shallow sowing, um, seed dressing, water the day you plant, um, press wool from the side, um, have singulation of seed with a precision planter. Um, that'll get you a good crop. Now, the problem is, as you probably would be aware, that you, know, you need narrow row spacings to get your best yield. So, so you really want cereal wheat barley type row spacings rather than a row crop spacing. Um, but if you had a choice between precision planting with seed singulation and, and maximise your rows, you go with your, your planter. So I always recommend people to, to you know, turn a plant around if they've got GPS, it's easy, and plant twice in between and the rows. That's so exactly what I was going to ask, whether you sow once at half the rate, then offset your GPS and sow back again. But that, that obviously covers that. Per perfect. That's good. I'm glad... So you're one of these coachable farmers, Martin. Uh, you, you got it. <laughs> it. It's very important to do that. So I've seen crops that have grown, yielded quite well, even though they might have had, um, uh, yeah, what's twenty inches in the in the, it's what's that about forty five centimeters gap or something. That's that's um, a lot more than fifteen or seventeen, which mm. is perfect. But it still seems to be enough. And and now the trick. If you can, you know, sow it east-west because if you sow it east-west and the sun's always at an angle, you get more, you're intercepting all that sunlight. Um, if, you, if you plant north-south and your gaps between your rows are too wide, you, you waste a lot of sunlight for most of the crops. So so oh, that's that's important. Getting, getting Yeah, yeah. So it's very important that. So planting and irrigating is probably the, it's going to determine most of your yield. Yeah. Um, so the next thing is you know get all your ducks in a row so obviously just point out it's a it's a regulated crop so your department of agriculture in every state but queensland are your regulator so if you google or whatever search engine you want to use you know regulation um or, or grow a license for hemp in your state it'll it'll take you straight to the link that you need in queensland it's still the drug enforcement agency that 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 manages that um, they're not too difficult, but it is just a little bit removed from from the Department of Agriculture's. Um, in just for example, in um, Canada, they'll as long as your seed crop was tested to have low THC levels, you they won't bother you uh, if you bought that seed line. Uh, in crop in Australia at the moment, you have to get your your seed that's got a certification that the THC levels are less than half a percent when the crop was being grown, and and the your own crop when you're growing it to to continue with the crop without being given a dis destroy the crop order uh, it has to have less than one percent THC to continue through the grain or bulk crop. If you want to take that crop to seed, 
you have to has to actually achieve less than half percent. So so it's a regulated crop. So you 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 want to be aware of the the regulations and who to talk to um, in your area. So that's important. And and with your hemp growing license, you'll have a have to submit your GPS location of where your crop is. So so when they have their satellites um, with their spectral cameras, it'll come up hemp. They say, oh, we know that one. So you don't have the federal police visiting you. So it's important you, you, not you to don't have want that experience. The AFC kicking in your door. That that wouldn't be pleasant. No, no, and they and they and I've been in that situation with crops, and they're not impressed a that they didn't have a someone to get a score with on the day, and b that that the whole process wasn't pushed through. That they actually are wasting their time. So it, it's it, you usually don't uh, sit down and have a cup of tea. It's, it's usually not a pleasant experience. So to just make sure you your regulator has all the information they need. Um, definitely don't put a crop in on spec. <laughs> you'll need a license, otherwise you'll be in trouble. Um, and never allow, uh, never allowed to grow again for ten years if nothing worse in terms of um, any convictions. Um, now to get the crop, commit to growing a crop, you need obviously you need a contract to grow, that to 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 supply the product at the end of the day. So some of the states mandate that you you identify who you got to sell it to. Uh, I would definitely make sure you've got a, a supply contract for for someone to sell your crop to after it's finished. So there's people there that are willing to give you. A contract for the grain and there's people willing to take the bulk crop off your hands to produce generally in Australia at the moment building products with the the herd which is the pithy uh, material just under the skin of the stem and the stem itself the skin on the stem itself is is the fiber so the fiber in Australia is generally a, a byproduct that will eventually get sold probably to a, a fabric manufacturer in Asia but but the the herd in the bulk crops is what's popular at the moment. There's there's a thousand one uses for hemp, so we won't go through that. But make sure you have a contract before you grow, uh, and then make sure you have a commitment from a harvester, or identify who's going to harvest the crop. Make sure they're willing to to harvest the crop, and so you're not going to have a crop that's ready to harvest. No one's there willing to harvest it on you. It's it's got a bit of reputation of being difficult to harvest, like you said, mung beans. A bit of fun sometimes, and black-eyed cowpeas is another one I know. A bit of fun, hemp. Um, if you follow the guidelines for harvesting, it's not going to damage anybody's machine. It's not going to be hard, but you just got to be aware of the the settings for your harvester to do it. Now, the other thing you got to have lined up is is uh, treatment of the grain immediately after harvesting. Uh, so this is another thing that can make it. A uh, bit of a, a gatekeeper for for yeah, new growers. That that's one thing that really took me by surprise when I met you out there at that paddock was what you actually have mm. to do post harvest to uh, ensure the quality of that product. Exactly right. So you need to harvest the product, harvest the grain moist. Um, so the stable storage moisture is nine percent. Um, Anything over nine percent, it, it it can spoil on you, and it'll go putrid because it's high in protein, high in oil. It 
it'll be um, going to composting rather than animal feed or anything if it if you don't get it dry. So you harvest it around about 15% moisture to get a good um, you know, recovery of the grain in the paddock and then you'll need to dry it within as most moist grains. You need to dry it within a few hours of harvesting um, and then you'll probably will need to obviously uh, clean it as well. The people will give you a contract for clean and dried grain. They won't just say, give it to me wet and full of trash. Um, so you'll need a seed dryer and cleaner nearby. That's important. When you're a point on the, on the grain itself in the head, it's a indeterminate flowering plant. So you'll find each individual plant might be flowering and setting grain over perhaps a three-week period. So you'll have grain on the bottom of the plant, perfect, um, shelling out and dropping on the ground, and you'll have un immature green grain on top. So the trick is to just pick when to take the the, the bulk of the, the crop, which is about 85% of the crop. So if you, were, if you had a crop set in the paddock at, at one tonne of grain, um, you, you're only ever going to be able to harvest 85% uh, of it. You'll leave some behind. And, of course, you've got your harvest losses too. So harvest the losses, so you might be another 10%. So you to get a one-tonne crop, you might be producing 1.3 tonne of grain uh, set. So just just be aware of that. It's, people can generally use uh, draper fronts or, or stripper fronts. They, they help, obviously. Um, but you'll never get every grain. So the trick is just to try and take the middle of it. And many people will use reglone or diquat to, to dry the heads off to get a, a better grain recovery and also makes it less work on the seed drying stage. So so that's important, Martin, that bit. The next thing is weeds. Um, it's reputed to be a super plant and and it's a very weak seedling and a slow plant for the first up to 30 days. Um, so you need to have a situation where your weeds are under control uh, by the time you, when you're planting. So obviously you have a, a clean seed bed, uh, but you'll need to not have a, a situation if you're reluctant to use herbicides where you expect a lot of weeds. Um, if, if you are getting weeds, You've got plenty of grass where you control options. Um, I'll just can I talk commercial names or products? Can I? Or I guess I can. Um, I don't see why not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Obviously, so, if so growers should check that they are either registered or on permit, but that's that's for them to work out. Hundred percent, Martin. So this there's no registered products uh anywhere in any system in the planet for hemp so they're all permitted systems so so go to your apvma site and look up what's available for hemp but for for weed control pre-emergent post-plant pre-emergent um people use stomp i think there's a little bit of a uh damage to the plants with stomp but if you know how to use stomp you know use stomp um i did some work that you saw in that paddock with me, Martin, of um, Drill Goal. And it's not even got a permit yet. So this was under uh, a research with um, under contract. So it showed it's it's a going to be a product that's going to be very valuable as a 
post-selling pre-emergent for hemp. That's dual goal. Um, but that's not not over the line yet, but just keep that, depending on how long after this podcast people are listening to it. You've got bromoxynol, which is a generic chemical for your broad, broadleaf weed control early on. Um, and then there's, again, hasn't gone through any permits yet, but long troll, um is very safe for hemp too. So we've got two new products that need to be um, proven again for crop safety that, that we can use. So at the moment, under the permits, you've got Stomp, you've got Bromoxynol, and you've got maybe you have three major types of um, grass in-crop selective control you can use there. So that's all right. You've got that. Um, but the broadleaf weed control is our major problem because Bromoxynol is pretty safe on hemp, but it doesn't have a broad range of control. So so you, you wouldn't pick your weediest paddock to put hemp in. That's, that's what I would say. Um, and because hemp is also susceptible to um, herbicide residues. So be wary what was used before you grow the crop. Um, like your triazines like atrazine, diuron, for example, I'd be wary of planting too soon into into that soil. What what um, are your clearbacks like from other chemistry? Like say poppies, for example, um, has a seven year plant back to Treflan, which would rule out a lot of places I know of. Is there anything that extreme like that with hemp? Not that we know. <laughs> it's 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 still we're still learning uh about the crop. So I don't know anything that sensitive to Treflan. Treflan has been tried on hemp, just picking on that chemical. It's it's probably the damage is not tolerable, but it, it's probably not too severe. So I don't think, and, and and I'm not making a recommendation here, but I think if the crop before had Treflan, I wouldn't be worried about it. If the crop before had a triazine, I'd be a little bit worried. Um, certainly that trial that you walked through with me, we use sulfonurias, like your yeah, you know, yeah, met sulfurons and and allies and etc. Um, they seem to be very good at stopping the plant from achieving anything. So, so your sulfonurias, um, which are commonly used in in you know, winter cereals, um, you just want to make sure that they're not present in the soil. I mean, they're they're, they're well researched chemicals, so. The guidelines for how long they last in the soil environment is well known, but but stay away from them um, as well. So there's other residuals. I can't really answer the question. Um, I probably I don't think anybody really knows, Martin. Yeah. Yeah. No. Just, um, I imagine they discovered that. Um, I mean, Trefland from seven years ago in the poppies. I, I don't know how they discovered that, but uh, <laughs> I had a grower that was looking at growing poppies under contract in New South Wales and yeah we had to do soil tests for herbicide residue because of things like Treflan and there were a few others that had two and a half three year plant backs hmm. I, I'm not surprised I guess I guess the only thing to remember hemp is sort of related to hops and um, I'm trying to think there's another crop can't think of it but um Hops, and I think tobacco too might be somewhere in the family as well. Um, those are well researched and known. So you, you get the old search engine out and see 
how sensitive they are to plant backs, that might give you a hint if you if you're concerned. But like you said, poppy's is an interesting one, and I know some horticulture crops where we just couldn't explain what was going wrong until we went right back into the the paddock history and found there was a herbicide that seemed quite innocent it was actually still lingering there causing problems so yeah um but we don't know um okay so the next bit was the the checklist is irrigation so the crop will go probably you know the very very quickest crops might be 90 days um and if you're taking them through to to a bulk crop um you're not waiting for the grain sets so you're probably um harvesting the bulk crop material around about 90 days but typically uh you'll have the crop i would think usually about 105 to about 130 days generally that's what i've seen most crops in australia so you you've probably want three megalitres of irrigation if you're in a hot climate with low humidity you might need five megs but but it's the it's the frequency of irrigation which we talked about so you, you want to be able to irrigate the whole crop area every five days when you're in that extreme um, conditions. Um, so so I, it's like I always say to anybody with irrigation, if you've got a fully irrigated setup, you, it means you can cover the whole the whole area you're irrigating in a usually in fifteen days rule of thumb for most farms, um, but for hemp. You want to be able to cover your ground every five or to seven days, and if you can't do that, just put a smaller area in or something like that. That's but you, it's small, frequent amounts of irrigation is the key to success with irrigating hemp, and that's that's a big yield driver is your scheduling irrigation. I can't emphasize you know pick the right season, planting date for your seed, plant the crop the way we talked about and irrigating that'll drive your yield your your pests and weeds are probably not as important it's but the irrigation is very important um certainly at the moment it's not a dry land crop um uh unless you're in a you know 3000 mil a year rainfall and it rains every 5 days it'd be fine yeah are they getting away with it in areas like the northern rivers there's always exceptions to it um and like I said, it's a tough crop. It won't die. So people will always say, "I don't, I don't agree with you, Rob." Um, but they're not getting big yields when the dry land. Um, I've seen in Tasmania quite a few instances there around about 2017, 2018, where people didn't put three megs on; they put six to eight megs on. But they, for many reasons of convenience and, and belief. They put it on every 16 to 20 days. And those crops yield a half to a third of the people that put half that amount of water on regularly. Um, it, it, the, the crop the crop will, just like if you're a connoisseur of making loosened hay, you, you see the same thing. It just stops. It doesn't look sick. doesn't look stressed. It just stops progressing. And uh, and that's what hemp will do. If you're, if you're not watering or make sure it's got water in that, um half of your fill capacity you know like 60 to 80 percent of your fill capacity it'll stop and and um and just won't progress to to doing whatever it needs to do and you just get a a head that might produce um 
as little as 15 grams of grain instead of your a head that might be potentially doing 150. Um, those crops I was comparing in, in Tasmania were all the one variety. Um, so we had people doing 2.2 ton and we had people doing half a ton. Uh, and those half ton crops were actually had put more water on than the one doing 2.2 so tons so that's that's probably done that point to death now but that's it um well, it just goes to show how important that, that irrigation is mm, absolutely martin it is important uh, if you can't achieve that then it's probably a, not a crop for you i would think um on irrigation just on the bullet point of, of of the checklist, you know, overhead irrigation rather than flood. We've talked about that already, but um, I wouldn't recommend flood irrigation at the moment with the with the varieties that we have. Uh, and and to help you with the irrigation scheduling, I'm a strong advocate of using a um, you know a moisture probe or something because they will tell you um, when to water. So there's there's new probes out of Israel. Um, I'll I'll do a name, I guess. That's a CropEx is a brand um, company. And those probes you screw into the ground and they'll actually self-calibrate. And, and they'll spend about three days, especially if you water it um, in those three days. Or, and it'll actually calibrate and work out how much water the soil needs. And, and you can actually put in to the dashboard that comes up on your phone or your computer and you say, I'm growing this crop and it'll actually schedule the irrigation for that crop. Um, and, and it'll tell you how much to put on and when to put it on and, and even send you text messages when, when you set your minimum amount of tolerance to how dry it is that you have to water it. So, and it, it, they will talk to the, the Bureau, Bureau of Meteorology and actually it will say, text you, oh, I'm recommending 40 mils in the next 48 hours, but you've got 60 mils forecast, so just delay. You know, or it might say, despite rain coming, you need to water it now. So, so the, these irrigation scheduling, um, and it's not that's not the only brand. They're very handy. And crops like this are sensitive to having to suck hard, Um because hemp is a poor feeder of nutrients and a poor sucker of moisture. So you, they're very handy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, for the investment, they're definitely worth it. If you're doing anything with irrigation, hemp, cotton, wheat, whatever, sorghum, I, yeah, I can't see why you wouldn't have capacitance probes in the ground. Um, and if oh. you live in certain LGAs in New South Wales, uh, they're, is actually grant funding available through the farms of the future. Unfortunately, it's only available to 11 LGAs, and it's a bit of a sore point for me at the moment if, um, yeah, if you can't pick up on that. Oh, oh I, I mean, once, once, you, once you have a probe or two and you actually use them, usually people will buy more because they can they get their money back very quick. On they it. see the benefits. Um, it's... it's it, it's like animal management yes, software. Yes, so that's it. It it's it just makes you more efficient. They cost. They're very cost effective, and of course they they exist because they are cost effective. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. So just just on slope and drainage of the land. That's another checkpoint. Make sure the land drains well. Doesn't doesn't become a swamp after irrigating or after heavy rain. 
like I said before, if corn and lucerne can grow without it perishing, you'll you'll be fine. Um, we've talked about herbicides, the calculating fertilizer requirements for the crop. Um, it's it has a reasonable requirement of fertilizer. So generally, yeah, I work particularly on for, if you were doing both grain and fiber. You, you mentioned earlier, you know, you can yield up to three tons of grain and then. 13 tonnes of fibre. Um, yes. I, don't, I don't know what the extraction uh, amounts are, but that is a lot of nutrition to be exporting uh, from the paddock regardless. Yeah, yeah. So you, it's a very leafy plant when you look at it. So so it gives returns a lot of nutrient back. So I'll go through some numbers there, but general rule of thumb is that people measure it has been measured um in north america and i think the way the crops grow after a hemp crop i can think there is a lot of recycling of nutrients so rule of thumb is that half the nitrogen stays there in the soil and quickly becomes available from the leaf obviously so it, half the nitrogen comes back for the next crop and then 70 percent of the potassium becomes available uh for the next crop and then and obviously that include when you are yeah. exporting that fibre as well? Probably, I would say you are correct. I'd say there'd be less potassium returning that way because you're taking it off. Yeah, I agree what you're saying. Yeah, but yeah, I just, for grain I, crops, def definitely. Yeah. I, yeah, I just would have thought there'd be a fair bit of potassium in the fibre given that's, that's where it goes in most other crops uh, in the stem. Yeah, yeah. So so the, the, the nutrient requirements for a typical crop um and and it all depends on your soil tests and and what's um already there from previous crops but i usually work on about 120 kilos of nitrogen for a grain crop and maybe 150 kilos for a um a fiber crop and if you're confident you're going to go high-end yields obviously you up them maybe yeah 20 percent or something like that but at the moment, I, a typical result of um, grain is yeah usually about just in the, over a ton, one point two tons, so one hundred and twenty kilos of nitrogen there, and and a typical result for an experienced fibre grower could be about sixteen, fifteen, sixteen ton, and you want about one hundred fifty kilos of nitrogen. For phosphorus, you want to make it fairly easy for the plant to find phosphorus, so you want twenty five to thirty kilos of phosphorus. Some people talk 40. I don't usually see that's enough unless it's, um, you know, unfertilised ground, but hopefully not many people are doing that. So so about 25, 30 kilos of phosphorus. I generally just recommend 100 kilos of potassium is put on the crop um, just to make it easy for the plant to find it. Uh, even if you've got a, a heavy clay soil that could be rich in phosphorus, uh, in, in potassium, I still recommend that. Sulfur's probably in the around about fifteen to twenty kilos of sulfur. Um, it's it's yeah, it forms a lot of amino acids and proteins, so it needs sulfur for that. So be fairly generous of that. Don't just use you know nitrogen sources that may not have sulfur or starters that don't have sulfur. Your calcium magnesiums tend to be okay with these crops. You don't really need to apply them. Um, the two trace elements that I would highlight uh, is boron and zinc. 
because the crop really does rapid dry matter production from about 30 days to about 100 days. And in that latter end of that 100 days, that's when you're flowering and setting grain. Um, so you want the growing points to have plenty of boron and zinc. So I usually recommend a kilo to a kilo and a half of both of those. And that's your, that's your nutrition. Yeah, right. And the boron, would you put that up front or time that as a folio with your flowering? Uh, boron can be a bit mobile in the soil, but it, unless you're irrigating a sand, just put it on when it's convenient. But you are absolutely right. It, it's not really needed um, until about midway in the crop. But I would put it on when I start seeing the buds of the males. The males the first one to show signs of wanting the flower. I'd make sure I got the zinc and the the boron on by then, as a foliar typically. Um, you can put it on before you plant, no doubt, but um, yeah, make sure you got on then um, somewhere by mid-crop, yeah, be long yep. before the females start being receptive, I would think. Yep. yep. Um, all right, and then the other thing is the pH range. Everybody wants to know that. So, so it's, yeah, I'm trying to make out it's a bit of a soft crop and it is a bit of a soft crop to get optimal yield. So I would be wanting to see it ranging 6 to 6.5 pH calcium chloride. Ideally, 5.8 to 8.1 is very acceptable, but uh, it's very vulnerable to aluminium toxicity, which depending on, on your soil usually happens less than 5.5 in your calcium chloride tests um, become soluble. So make sure you lime the paddock um, to make sure you're above that, which is just good farming practices for every crop anyway. And then it's sort of tolerant to salinity. Um, uh, my understanding is salinity is indicated when your pH is above 8.1. Um, but if you've got it in your water, um, you you want to be wary of how much how much saline water you can apply to the crop. It's it's not a crop that enjoys being irrigated with you know high EC water or or obviously high sodium water. I I think it it's you want better end of your water quality. Yeah. Well, um, it was interesting because yeah. that that farm that I met you at, obviously I well, I don't know their water quality, but I used to do a bit with a farm that probably draws from a similar aquifer um, a yep. bit further further down. And, uh, yeah, the water there was was appalling. Um, it wasn't mm. actually that it was particularly saline. The, the sodium levels by themselves weren't too bad. It just didn't mm. have any um, carbonates with it. So the yep. um, sodium absorption radio ratio was was off the scale i think we're at like 22 when the scale stops at 14 so <laughs> that, that certainly sounds pretty deadly yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. i, I, I was, agree I it agree. was like a one-ton irrigated barley crop that was grown on it it didn't help that it was in the drought and anything that mm. ate grass was on it every night so it um it mm. was an interesting mm. situation oh yeah <laughs> Yeah, so so that's anyway. That's about where we are with with the crop. Um, yeah, yeah, we could talk about crop agronomy a lot more, but I I think that's 
you know, for the the listeners, that's about what I think we might might say enough. I was all talk of the deaf. Yeah. No, well, that's good. I think we've we've certainly covered it. Um, and if people want to know more, where can they find advice? The the Hemp Council, Australian Hemp Council, um, is a national body, and there's state bodies as well. So if you go to the Australian Hemp Council, you'll find um, links to an agronomy forum. Um, not just me, but other people that will you know people can type in questions and you'll get some answers there's um each each there is also a second uh national hemp body as well um which which is i think you should consider seeing and exploring both of those associations and if each of those national bodies have have a state um association as well so they're both very handy in in um you know, giving advice and and it's an industry that that's growing and there's a lot of gener- generous giving of advice in the in the industry and and something to look out for in the very near future is the uh, agri futures um, best management practice guide that will probably get published um, sometime around the middle of 2023 and that that was a good starting point um as well so just in time for um, the 23 24 season is exactly right exactly right most most of the crops at the time of recording this in february most of the crops for this season uh are in the ground there's still scope for planting north new south wales and queensland by all means and then as you go north uh into the tropical area um the the day length sensitivity to triggering flower is diminished and and it then becomes accumulated heat units so so you'll find if you've got water and and not too extreme heat you can plant hemp all year round once you're in the tropics um you know probably above the tropic capricorn for sure maybe maybe just around the tropic capricorn so it's a you could probably have two crops a year in the north um and and you probably have one crop in the in the temperate parts of Australia. Yeah. Yeah, right. Oh well that's good. Look forward to seeing it come out. Unfortunately, I don't think I'll be growing it myself um, until we can breed some better root structures in there because I do not have the irrigation. But um, yeah, it's certainly one to keep an eye on into the future. Yeah, I think so. I think it's got the potential to be as big as canola in the in the country um you know canola was was you know obviously rape in the early 90s and and uh and then i think canola means canada oil and these varieties came out of north america that obviously been modified and improved for australian conditions and you know what i think we're what are we three four million hectares of canola now and and um all the same reason that yeah, massive. And and hemp's um you've got so many uses for hemp. You know, you can you can make fabric out of it, you can make building products out of it, you can um turn turn it into plastics, you can you can print fabrics out of it. Um you've got obviously um the food side of it, you know, it's an oil seed and it's a protein, vegan protein. Um it's got plenty of uses and, and any of the returns 
not outstanding per hectare in dollars. It's it's a very good rotation crop because you've got that very good water use efficiency in volume of water. Uh, it's a low volume water user, and and it certainly is a very good disease and pest break for your soil. Um, and you can grow it without any new machinery. So it's ticks a lot of boxes. Um, the the pull through to the consumers is is still happening. So that's why it's not being grown everywhere at the moment. But I foresee twenty by twenty thirty, twenty thirty five, it'll be a major um, crop in Australia. Yeah, yeah. It's um, I guess it's just at the moment all about getting more end users interested in uh, having hemp on their table or in their clothes. Exactly right. I mean, the fabric's brilliant. Like it's like it feels a bit like linen, um, but it's stronger than linen or cotton, uh, and and it doesn't harbour bacteria. So, not recommending it, but some blokes might think it's a good idea. You can wear the same shirt for weeks without stinking. So, um, it's it's quite a good fabric in that way. Uh, and we already talked about the the food value. So, yeah. No, well, that's good. Well, thanks for coming on. That's been a, yeah, a, an excellent discussion. Um, if people want to hire you as a consultant on their hemp crop, uh, what's the best way to get in contact? I would use the email, which is uh, rob, R-O-B, at ag-e-r-p, which is ageerp.com.au. So rob at ageerp.com.au. And you've got a Facebook page as well that they can find you there. I think it's Rob Eccles uh, Agronomy and Consulting, isn't it? Correct. That's that's it there as well. And he, you'll find me through the different um, hemp associations too. If they you pose pose the inquiry through there, they they can find me on that too as a as a source. No worries. Well, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Martin. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Right. Oh, well, that was another insightful episode with Rob Eccles. So if you want to find out more about the hemp industry, get onto Google or head to the show notes below and search the Australian Hemp Council or the Australian Hemp Alliance. I'll have links to both down there below. And um, keep an eye out for the release of the Hemp Best Management Guide. Anyway, until next time, keep at it.